Now, my dad, being from a law background, he would often say that when he goes to preach, he's actually giving his closing remarks, his closing statement. Um, my background is in education, and so when I get up to, to preach, it's really a lesson. It's teaching. So if I ask you by, like, raise of hands or something, uh, I will wait. <laughs> Anybody that's a, a good teacher, they know that you ask a question, and there's a couple seconds of awkwardness that happens after a question, and a good teacher will wait it out. No way until, right now it's time. So if it gets awkward, I apologize. It's, uh, it's my training coming out. So the book of Jonah, as we get into it, um, well, before we get started, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Let's pray. Lord, you are good, and we praise you for who you are, and you do not change. There is no shadow due to variation. You are the Father of lights. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you created a plan from before time began. And you chose us, not from our merit, but because of your great love, your steadfast love. Thank you, God. As we get into your word, Father, I pray that you would um, grant clarity, that your Holy Spirit would work through me and in each and every one of our hearts, that you would change us to become less like our flesh um, and more like Jesus we need this, Father. It's a daily struggle. And so we ask you, we beg you for grace, for mercy. Thank you, God, for giving us your word that we are not listlessly wandering the ocean looking for truth. We have truth. Thank you. Please guide us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, in teaching, one of my favorite things to teach is creative writing. I got to teach 11th grade research and writing when I lived on the island of Guam. And, uh, oh, such a wonderful, wonderful class to teach. It sounds boring, right, research and writing, but it, it became cool once we talked about creative writing and studying stories, that God uses stories, Jesus taught in parables. Uh, one of the popular themes now is to have a protagonist that is what's called an anti-hero. How many of you heard of the term anti-hero before? Oh, cool, awesome. Now, um, you can get really nerdy, and I would love to get really nerdy. I'm going to use some self-control here. But there are a variety of different types of anti-heroes. I'm going to explain them. We're going to talk about two different types right now. One is the anti-hero that is the failure. So in every story, you have this major question that needs to be answered, and you build up to the climax of the story. Some of you are having flashbacks to English class. I'm sorry. You build up to the climax of the story, and in that moment, the hero makes a decision whether they are going to operate in the new way that they've been trained through their experiences, or if they're going to fall back on previous styles. So a classic example is Frodo Baggins, Lord of the Rings. He gets, after three beautiful but long books, he gets to Mount Doom. And if you ever watch the movies like Back to Back or like the director's cut, you're just like, throw the ring in, please. We've been waiting for so long. So Frodo gets to Mount Doom, and he's got this ring. And the question is, like, do mortals have the ability to conquer the ring? And there's so much spiritual allegory going on in there. But he has this ring, and in the last moment, he doesn't throw it in. And he puts it on, and he disappears. 
and then something else happens. And it's, I know it's been enough time, it's not really technically a spoiler, but if you haven't watched it or read it, I want you to... It gets solved. Good things happen. But he fails as a hero. He gets to the moment, and he fails. Makes the wrong decision. That is one type of anti-hero. Another type of anti-hero I call the rebel. This is the person that is actually kind of a jerk. Like, they have a character flaw, and it's really loud. Everybody sees, like, um, there's a TV show. I haven't watched much of it, but House. He's a doctor, and he's just a jerk. Like, he's mean to everybody. But yet, he's still the protagonist, and he really does want to help people. But he kind of does it in his own way. This is like Robin Hood as well. The one who is morally questionable. I help people. I steal, but I help people. It's great. You'll love it. Right? This is Iron Man. It's Batman. It's, it's everybody that's got this kind of dark side, like... I'm going to get the job done. Don't ask questions. That's this type of rebel anti-hero. Now, here in the book of Jonah, you might be like, why are we talking about Batman? Well, because I'm millennial. No, but also because in the book of Jonah, we have this prophet who doesn't make a lot of sense. Like if you're just reading through the Old Testament and you get to Jonah, you're like, wow, this guy's kind of weird. But he's actually an anti-hero. This story of Jonah is kind of like a, it's a satire where a lot of the characters in this story are not who you expect them to be. And we'll get into it. Right now, I know most of you probably know the story of Jonah. As soon as I say Jonah, you probably have a picture of a what? A whale. A large fish. I have a really cool picture of this fish, and I'll show you in just a second. It's awesome. Because so often you see it like, like that kind of whale, right? Like this cutesy little whale. I don't think it was cute. I don't think it was cute. <laughs> All right, so let's dive in. Uh, we'll do a quick overview uh, through all four chapters. This book is amazing. It's so short, but it's really worth studying. If you look in chapter 1, verse 1, we have the inciting incident right here. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. A good story would be, Jonah goes to Nineveh, but he doesn't, right? A full, complete disobedience. If you're a parent or a teacher or anybody that's been in authority of somebody else, there's a couple of different types of disobedience, right? Where you say, like, if I sang to one of my kids, Jace, come here. And if he starts the shuffle, you know what I'm talking about? Actions, technically, yes. Obeying. Heart, no. I'm going to take my time. Jonah was not like that kind of disobedience. It's a complete turn and I'm out of here. Like, forget you. I'm done. And, and Jonah, he does this, but we don't really know why in chapter one. He just, he's like the directionally challenged. He's like me when we get into the car. Like, I'm just going to go. I feel like this is the way I should go. Jonah has a why though. He knows why he's not going to Nineveh. And he runs to Tarshish. And we see throughout chapter one, God brings this storm and there's a lot of different themes in this book, and I'm going to try not to get sidetracked. I can get a little ADD when I'm preaching. I apologize. Also, little child sleep-deprived. So if something doesn't make sense, it's not you. It's me. It's me. I have good intent, though, I promise. So there's this storm that shows up, and we have pagan sailors. This is our next series of characters, main characters in this story. These pagan sailors that are freaking out. Just like what we explained on Bali or in Indonesia, this animism, they're like, something bad is happening, it's the spirits. There is some God that is upset. You talk to your God, you talk to your God, you talk to your God. It, if we do all of them, maybe we'll survive. That's the goal. And Jonah's downstairs sleeping underneath or in the lower parts of the boat. They go down to him. 
They wake him up, look at verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. I want to see the angels in that moment be like, I'm sorry, you what? (laughs) You fear who? Didn't he say go? Never mind. He says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? That's kind of a funny question. You know, you'd hate to be Jonah in that moment where they're like, what should we do to you? And he's like, um, you should encourage me, pray for me. If you have money, we could do that. Like there's a lot of different things. But he ends up saying, you should throw me into the ocean. And commentators kind of differ as to why he's saying this. Some people think that this is really his most selfish act where he's saying, no to the Ninevites, no God, we're not doing this Ninevite thing. And pagan sailors, you know what? If they murder me, maybe you'll be upset with them too. So throw me into the water. So that's what some commentators think. Some others think that, oh, maybe this is Jonah actually realizing like, I have done wrong. This was not a good move. I probably deserve to die. So they throw him in. Pagan sailors, they're smart. Right before they throw him in, they're praying, God, his blood, not on our hands, please. So they throw him in. And this is one of the most beautiful moments because everything stops, right? You have this storm. Can you imagine being in something like this? Like, it's probably pretty easy to throw somebody out of the boat when you're at that angle, right? Like, you didn't, no plank needed. Like, just go. (laughs) Now, you should not take your theology from Veggie Tales. (laughs) Period. Like, that's a full statement right there. However, in Veggie Tales' version of Jonah, they kind of enlightened this one moment that I thought probably actually happened where as soon as Jonah goes out of the boat and lands in the water, it's like glass. Like the sea is completely calm. And I love it in VeggieTales. They're like, whoa, what do we do? Like, should we pull him back in? So they like throw out a life raft and they start trying to pull him back in. It doesn't work. But it's an interesting moment because if it was truly like a peace be still, like Jesus does and everything goes calm, those pagan sailors were like, we found God. (laughs) And they didn't need any more convincing. They were in. And it says, if you look there, verse 16 of chapter 1, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They're with this guy now. That's all it took for them. Well, remember this. The pagan sailors, that's all they needed. But Jonah went through this. Jonah then falls into the water, and he's you know, fully garbed, he expects them to drown. He's like, this is me dying now. And so we have chapter two, which is Jonah's prayer after this giant fish. And look at this picture. Isn't this fantastic? That is terrifying. I, I love lakes. I love the ocean. But when you get into the, the deeper parts and you can't see down, something in my heart just kind of like pops. And I'm like, what if there's one of these down below me? Anybody else feel that way? Okay, there's like six of us. Okay, fantastic. We'll all get the same lake boat and go together where we don't have to swim. But can you imagine if you're like sinking down in the water and you turn around and you see this? Like, <gasps> so the, the fish, of course, swallows Jonah. He's in the belly for three days and he's praying. Now, I don't have time to fully dig into chapter two, but this prayer is very interesting. It reminds me of, you remember the New Testament, you have um, the religious man and uh, the sinner that are both at the temple. And the religious man's talking about like, oh, I fast and I do all these things. 
and the sinner is like, God, have mercy on me. Those are two different prayers, right? Very different prayers. One is, God, I love you, and my life proves it. And the other is, God, I need you. It looks like in chapter two, it's a, God, I love you, and look at what I do. Thank you that I'm worth saving again. Thank you. Now, I'm, I'm reading a little bit of flavor into that, but you don't see anywhere in chapter two a confession. God, I messed up. I should not have. You don't see that at all. He thanks God for how powerful God is. He thanks him for saving him through this fish. Verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. When we get into chapter three, verse one, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This is like basically the same verse as chapter one, verse one. Unless we like gloss over this, like, okay, here we go again. Hold on. Remember who we're talking about. This is God. He had full license at that point to be like, Jonah, we done. Dead. Fish, no barfing today. Fully digest, thank you. Right? He would have been completely justified in doing that. And yet God gives a second chance. And don't we praise him for that? Because we need that. This is who God is. He gives this mercy. He gives another chance. All right, Jonah, let's try this again. Nineveh. And so Jonah then begrudgingly goes to Nineveh and he gives what I like to refer to as the lamest missionary message ever. All right, so look at verse four. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Which when we translate it into like Southern speak, it's like, all y'all gonna die. And walks out. Like this is, in missionary training, like this is everything they say, don't do this. <laughs> this is not good. So he, he goes in and he misses a, a lot. But one thing, there's three things that he really leaves out of this message, which is kind of important. One, he doesn't tell them what they've done wrong. Although, granted, when you think of the Ninevites, and like this is the best picture that I had for Nineveh, um, is gorgeous, but it's gorgeous because of conquest and spoils. These guys were savage warriors, like known for their brutality. To give you a picture, their art was like pretty much nothing but battle scenes and very much not rated G at all. Like their delight and their finesse was not cuisine, it was torture techniques. So these guys didn't really need probably to be told what they were doing wrong. They kind of knew. They had consciences, even though they were super seared. They didn't know their right hand from the left. But Still, he doesn't tell them what they've done wrong. Two, he doesn't mention kind of like a super important part like God. He doesn't say anything about God. He just walks in, oh, y'all going to die. And then third, there's no call to repentance. He doesn't say you need to confess. He there's no altar call. Like there's nothing. He just walks in like you're all going to die. 
You have 40 days. And yet, look at the next verse. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't believe Jonah. That is for sure. They believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And what this proves very clearly is that God doesn't need us. When you give the gospel, I mean, I encourage you, study the gospel. Know it well when you evangelize. But don't don't be nervous that God can't use some mistake that you make. He used Jonah. (laughs) All y'all going to die. And they're like, we need to repent right now. God is so much bigger than what we like to imagine. He's so much bigger and more powerful. We've studied a little bit of Hinduism and Islam and animism and the different religions that are out there, but we're not like subject matter experts to a perfectionist level. And that's okay. We're going to keep studying and learning and growing as we go, but we're going to give the gospel and God's going to use it. His word does not return void. So we have this repentance and then into chapter four, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. He has a temper tantrum. He prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Here's the why. You go back to chapter one, remember? He like runs the other way. We're like, what are you doing? (laughs) This is this why right here. As he comes out and he's talking to God, he's like, listen, I'm going to tell you why I ran. I knew this was going to happen. And he's about to just unload the whole clip. Okay? Everything that's wrong with God in this situation. Are you ready for this list? I mean, it's like, it's toxic. Here we go. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See, told you. You're awesome. How dare you? Like you, you kind of wonder if the people around are like, are you okay? Like, this is obviously, so like Jonah, remember, is like built parallel. So we have chapters one and three, everything's happening. Two and four, Jonah's talking to God. In two, remember, he's thanking him for saving him, mercifully abounding in steadfast love. <laughs> That's chapter two. Chapter four, mm-hmm. How dare you? He's upset with God. And he asks God, he said, Oh, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? I love when God asks questions. Not me, because then I feel convicted. But when he asks other people's questions, remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam, where are you? That's like a really loaded question. And here's another loaded question. It's a good one to ask yourself. When you're having a temper tantrum, when you're super upset about something, is this good for me to be angry about? And after you ask yourself, imagine that God's asking you that. Is it good that you're mad about this? Well, yeah, they scored a point. They're not my team. Of course I'm upset. (laughs) Ask yourself, is this good for me to be angry? And Jonah, he uh, exhibits like the the highest level of intelligence in the entire book. Because verse 5 doesn't start with Jonah said, it's just Jonah went. He kept his mouth shut, and that was a really good move. But then later on, we have a, a plant and a worm. God brings this plant to comfort Jonah as he's waiting for God to destroy Nineveh. 
And then God brings along a worm which destroys the plant. Jonah loses it again. And, and God then, he finishes the book of Jonah asking Jonah this question. And it's a, it's a dissonant ending. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? You're upset about not having this comfort. Don't you care about people? Now, this dissonant ending should cause us to think, right? Are you, do you care more about comfort or do you care about people that are dying and go to hell? On a weekly basis, are you more upset about the AC going out or the neighbor down the road that passed away and you didn't know if he knew Jesus or not? Which is more important to you? It's easy for us to poke fingers at Jonah and be like, you're a loser. You dumb. How did you not see this? And yet we're not a whole lot different. We have these different characters that we see. We have Jonah. Remember I talked about how very few people in this book are actually who they say they are or who you expect them to be. So we have Jonah, who's this prophet, who ends up being this rebel anti-hero who fails at everything he does and is actually a rebel against God, the prophet of God. Does that make sense? We have these pagan sailors that the, all they need, this one miracle, and they're like, I'm good to go. I'm converted. I'm following after this God. I'm making vows. We have Ninevites, these savage, brutal people that are so good at war and destroying things. And a lot of people believe that they probably actually raided towns near Jonah, probably part of his animosity towards them. And they convert. And they, they repent. And it's not just like a group of them does. It's everybody from the king of Nineveh, and they even make their cows fast. Like, it's everybody. Which is kind of, that's a whole unique thing. Poor cows, like, probably super confused. You fed me yesterday. But, like, they were fully committed. Like, this wasn't a half-hearted confession or repentance. Like, everybody, we are going to beg God for mercy. You have the one character that doesn't change and is exactly who you expect this character to be, and that's God. According to Jonah's accusation, was gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We have a couple of themes throughout this book. Three of them that I'm focusing on, and I'm going to try and be as brief as possible. We have forgiveness and patience. You see this all over the book from God, not from Jonah. Jonah was completely impatient and unwilling to forgive the Ninevites from the get-go. And yet God demonstrates this forgiveness and patience over and over again to Jonah. It's part of the beauty of this book is you're kind of expecting, okay, prophet goes in, preaches the message, changing the people, happy day. But really the story is about how God is putting up with Jonah throughout the entire book. The one who believes that he is religious and doing what he should be doing. I don't know about you, but that kind of hits me. The one who's religious and thinks that he's doing what he should be doing. But really, he's got his own agenda. He's not listening to God's agenda. 
And the next theme that we have is this idea of who is worth saving? Because Jonah genuinely believes, of course, that he's worth saving. That's all of chapter two. Thank you, God. You saved me. Good move. (laughs) Right? Pagan sailors, on the other hand, Jonah doesn't really care a whole lot about them, and he really does not care for the Ninevites. When we have this question, is that person worth saving? That question, whether we think it consciously or unconsciously, it really results in three different lies that we're believing. One is that we have a really high view of ourselves. I think I know who's worth saving. And I'm worth saving. Two, we have a really low view of God. We're not doing the saving. It's like we're telling God who to save. God, you actually don't know. Ninevites, not a good move. High view of ourselves, low view of God, and a low view of other people. We think we know. This is a genuine struggle for all of us. We see people who maybe differ from us. We see people who are like, oh man, maybe the unmentionables of society. And we're like, I know. I know how you got there. No, you don't. But we have a low view of others. And really none of that is like Jesus. (laughs) None of that is what Jesus told us to do. All the New Testament, like over and over again, we're a servant. We are slaves. Doulos. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. And you need to have a high view of God. (laughs) The opposite is so much more true. Like, do not have a low view of God. He knows what he's doing. You have no idea. He saved you. So like. (laughs) And then thirdly, Philippians 2 talks about considering other people as more important than yourself. And in in 2 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read a couple verses in 2 Corinthians 5. Sorry, not 15. 5, verses 14 to 17. Listen to this in this frame. Ready? For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died and he died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We're not looking at other people through the lens of this world anymore. Because as it says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, that did not go well, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Everyone is worth saving. Preach the gospel. Your neighbors need to hear the truth whether you believe they need to or not. And remember that God can use any message to save people. Any message. But you need to go and you need to start speaking. You need to build that relationship intentionally and share the gospel. This third theme is a powerful theme and it's a hard theme. But honestly, right now, we are in a context and a culture where we have a lot of opportunity to show this third theme. Loving your enemies. Now, back in the day, the enemy was the guy with the sword that's trying to kill you. Lord willing, that's not as much what's happening today in America. But you have people that believe very differently than you do. 
They believe differently about politics. We see that very quickly. About their sexuality, their gender, about what they believe is valuable or invaluable. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that by loving them, we're going to adopt whatever it is they believe and make it our own. I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you that we are supposed to love. That is a sacrificial love that is willing to endure pain and discomfort for the good of the other. I know this is hard. I'm trying to witness to some of my neighbors. I have a neighbor across the street who's LDS, and I love the guy. He's amazing. So LDS is Mormon, for those of you who don't know, like some of the most moral people you'll ever meet. Some of the people that will absolutely rip your heart to shreds when you think about where they're headed and the lies that they've been sold. Oh. But the conversation gets awkward when we start talking about, like, hey, there's differences in what we believe. And he changes the subject so fast, I don't even know what happened. <laughs> we were about to talk about the gospel, and it's like, what, weather? What? How did you... <laughs> But I love him, and so I will fight through that discomfort and awkwardness because he's headed to hell, and he needs Jesus. He needs the gospel. Your neighbors need the gospel. Your coworkers need the gospel. That's why we're here. That's why we're going is to work through that awkwardness, that difficulty, all the differences, and to share the gospel. And God had to kind of like wrestle Jonah into Nineveh practically. Let's be a little bit more willing than that, shall we? So the applications here, that we are to be patient and forgive. We make mistakes. Jonah made a lot of mistakes. God was patient with him. Be patient forgive one another. I love this verse from 1 Peter 2:17. Honor everyone. Honor everyone. This is a command from scripture. Honor everyone. I don't care the clothes, I don't care the beliefs, honor them. They have value. God made them. Honor them. Love the brotherhood. Especially growing up I loved this because the brotherhood is like yeah. Like this is the church. Like This is us. We take care of one another. We love each other. Fear God. Oftentimes, we don't share the gospel because we really don't fear God. We really don't have an awe and a reverence for who God is and what's coming. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Show respect to those who are in authority. You might be like, well, when they're respectable, it says the emperor. Do you know who that was? Honor the emperor. Honor our authorities that are over us. And lastly, love our enemies. And is there not a better way to love your enemy than to share the gospel with them? Build a relationship with them. Get to know who they are. And love them by telling them about Jesus. It's not easy. It's not easy. But being a disciple of Christ is not easy. But it's worth it. He is worth it. We need to chew on that. We need to remember that he is worthy. Let's pray.
God, you are good and you are patient and forgiving and merciful. We see it over and over again in this book of Jonah. Thank you, God. Lord, please help us not to take the same stance as Jonah where we feel like we can see all the flaws of Jonah and we would have done it so much better were we in that situation. Help us to be humble, like the pagan sailors, like the Ninevites, that we would take the stance of realizing that you are right and we are wrong and we need to change, God. Please work in our hearts. Mold us. Help us to love you, Father, to have this reverence, this healthy fear of you. God, you are so worth it, and I pray that you would guide us now. Help us as we head out into this week that we would be eager and ready to share the gospel. We would look for opportunities to build these relationships so that we can tell them about Jesus, the one who we live for, Let the love of Christ control us to motivate us to step into those uncomfortable conversations because you are worth it, God. Thank you, Father, for your love, for your forgiveness, your mercy. Please give us grace. We need it desperately. We pray in your son's name. Amen.